Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us, guys, at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. And I am Lisa Lorette West, licensed clinical social worker. Coming up here on the Gifted Life Podcast today. We'll be talking to one heart transplant recipient and hearing how she's paying it forward through a foundation to help other post-transplant recipients. And in the mental health section, we're going to talk about what is doom scrolling and how it can impact your mental health. All that and more right here on the Gifted Life Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. Thegiftedlife.org. Hang on. Here on the Gifted Life Podcast, we want to introduce you to our newest friend, Denise Redeker. How are you? Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Denise is a heart transplant recipient. She's doing great things to pay it forward. And she listens to the Gifted Life Podcast. We love it. Every single week. (laughs) (laughs) We love that. We love that you reached out to connect so we can help tell your story. And that's what the podcast is all about, connecting with folks from across the world to help have that donation conversation. So where are you located, ma'am? I am located in Northern California, um, just north of San Francisco. Nice. And so heart transplant recipient, take us down that road. Well, I was diagnosed with postpartum cardiomyopathy when I was 29 years old. So I lived with heart disease most of my life and arguments could be made that I actually lived with heart disease my entire life um, Mm. because everyone on my father's side of the family died of, uh, died early of heart disease um, in some way, shape or form, um, except that mine just wasn't caught because back then, Nobody tested you. I never had an echo. I never had an EKG until I was um, delivering my son. So it never, there was never an opportunity for me to know what was going on and know that there was a congenital issue. So the diagnosis um, at 29 came as kind of a shock, but um, I did what all good new moms do and pushed my own stuff aside and, you know, had to have my mom time and, mm-hmm. and didn't really pay much attention to me. I think a lot of women uh, do exactly that. They, um, they do what's right in front of them and take care of their family. And they kind of push their own health issues to the side a lot of times to our own detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to live in denial until I wasn't. Um, and that wasn't resulted in implanted pacemakers and defibrillators over the years. And then I'd go back to living in denial until uh, one day in December of 2017, my cardiologist said, you have a year to live. Oh my gosh. And I then was like, oh, oh, transplant isn't going to happen to somebody else. It's going to happen to me or I'm not going to be here. Right. And, um, I didn't have a whole lot of time to process that because that conversation happened in December of 2017. And in January of 2018, uh, first part, right after the first of the year, I had a ventricular tachycardia episode, basically a heart attack, 
that landed me in the ER and then they transferred me to Stanford and told me I was too sick to go home and I would be moving into the hospital until mm. I received my transplant. Oh, wow. That had to be, I, I can't even imagine that you're, you're going through some of the best moments emotionally, mentally in your life, you know, with, with having a child and then, and then all of a sudden going from that high to the fact that your child may not have a mom. I, I can't imagine what was going through your mind at that point. My mind's racing for you. Yeah, it uh, it was a lot to take in. Um, but when I tell you that I'm really good at denial, um, yeah. I'm really, really good at denial. It's, um, it's one of the strongest, uh, yeah, like denial gets so many people in trouble. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, Olivia Newton-John just passed away recently and one of her critical interviews about how she dealt with her cancer. Um, I really resonated with because she said, sometimes denial is the healthiest place to be. Mm. And I thought, yep, that's where I, that's where I spent most of my time because sitting and dwelling on it and stewing about it isn't going to change your reality. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. right. So, right. so you might as well live your life and do the best you can do be a good patient, of course, all the time. Absolutely. But the more you sit and dwell in that negative space of, of what if and what could and maybe, the less life you actually are getting to live. But I mean, just you telling me that, like you made me okay with everything. <laughs> like the attitude, <laughs> we had talked about this on the podcast before and how you um, face traumatic experiences and things like that. But I mean, you're so upbeat as you're telling your own story. Like that's got to help you. It is a very fine line of accepting your illness and taking care of yourself and doing what you need to do, but not letting it be your total everything. Right. Your, your guide. Yes. Denial can't live in a place where you're a terrible patient, that, that where you, where you don't take care of yourself. Be a good patient, but there's, there's zero point in dwelling and stewing and playing the what if game. And my mother used to say, getting on the what if bus, you need to get off the what if bus. Denial can only take you so far. And, and so, so take us back to that time you, you mentioned, you know, you denied, you get, you know, all this, the, the pacemaker and all, all these things. And then you go into the VTAC and then get admitted to Stanford and your realization that, you know, what was a year is now maybe a month. So take us through that and through that the time that you, you received the phone call that you may have that second chance. Well, it, uh, it actually wasn't a phone call uh, because I was living in the hospital at that point in time. Um, and my gift from God, I 100% I believe, was he didn't give me a whole lot of time to process um, because if I'm left to my own devices, I can spiral, which is why I choose not to most of the time. Um, but living in the hospital, I didn't have the distractions of day to day of, of getting laundry done or doing this or doing that. It was medical stuff directed at me pretty much 24 seven. I, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of time to process. I moved into the hospital on January 6th. And on January 29th, a surgeon walked into my hospital room at 11.30 p.m. Mm. Funny how you remember right. exact oh, yeah. dates and times yep. um, of some things and said, we have an offer for you. And I looked at him and said, 
are you buying a house? <laughs> Why are you, what, what does this mean? I don't know what this means. And, and he said, he said, no, I think we have the perfect heart for you. So we're running tests and everything, but he said, I think we're, I think this is the heart for you. And he explained that it was a high risk heart and explained what that meant. And it didn't seem like an important enough reason to say no. And if he thought it was perfect, I was willing to say yes. And uh, at 8.30 p.m. on January 30th of 2018, I was rolled into the surgical suite and two open heart surgeries later at 8 a.m. the next day, I was rolled out with a new heart. Wow. It's, it's funny you mentioned, you know, you talk about that, I guess, short dilemma that you had when he tells you that he has your, your life-saving organ there. And then also tells you, you know, that it's high risk. And, and uh, I've, you know, I've been in my role and I've been it with Lopa for t- over 20 years. And one of the, the biggest things uh, when people ask me, you know, if I, if I ever need an, a, a transplant, will you help me? And I'm like, well, there's only so much I can do because I can't move anyone up and down the list. But what I can do is tell you, say yes to a high risk organ. And, yep. and what, what we're talking about here, it's not high risk for failure. It's just high risk for having one of the infectious diseases like the hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV. And as right. we've talked exactly. about in previous episodes, you know, all of these things are very treatable, right? You exactly. can, you can, hepatitis C, you know, especially over the last few years is completely treatable as far as they can give you a medicine over a six, a six week or eight week span and, and it no longer exists. It kills the virus in your body. And then, you know, HIV, we all know the kind of the poster child there of HIV, the person that come the face of HIV, at least for me as a sports fan, Magic Johnson found out in 1992, you know, that's mm-hmm. 30 years ago. So you're faced with a, a question, would you accept it? Uh, that's, that's, that had to be a quick and easy yes. And, uh, and most of the time, these are the best, most ideal organs otherwise. So you probably received one of the healthiest hearts you could have probably gotten. Now, Joey, let's, well, cl- let's clarify a little bit that HIV organs will go to HIV recipients. Right. Just a to little clarify. different than hep C and D. Yeah. Right. Just to clarify, yeah. it's the, the Absolutely. So, so we do tests, just they're higher risk. And, but we still test, and, and you still know what the infectious, if there is one, what it is. And, it, and our tests now close that, that uh, window down to one week. So there's, you would only have, and I think, and I, I, I hate to quote, but our, our infectious disease doctor, I want to say it's something like one in 10,000 of, of one of those slipping through the cracks. One in 10,000. It's something in that ballpark. And uh, he basically, you know, his 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 comparison is you have a better chance of running, getting into the a freeway and getting hit by a car on foot right now than you do of of uh, contracting a disease like that that we didn't know about. So tell us a little bit about post, you know, you, so you get this new chance. How was that? You know, the immediate aftermath, and then you know, and then uh, afterwards. Well, my uh, my. Post transplant story uh, becomes a little more complicated. Um, I ended up having three open heart surgeries in the span of a week. I had two um, two different separate open heart surgeries the night of my transplant, 
And then I had a third a week later because I just kept bleeding internally. Um, so everything got pushed back. I had both types of organ rejection and an infection. I spent a little over three months in and out of the hospital mm. post-transplant. Um, I came home with a wound back. Finally, when I was discharged from home, I didn't, I, I didn't make it back to my actual home until April. Wow. Yeah, I was going to um, ask, how far from your, your home was your transplant center? Two and a half hours. Okay. I was there yesterday. <laughs> um, two and a half hours with, tra- with traffic. Um, and, it's, and, and it's over a bridge in, uh, in Northern California. We have the complication where you have to be within a short radius of your hospital, but they also require that you not go over a bridge. So our transplant hospitals are either in San Francisco or in Palo Alto, which is near like where the Apple headquarters are and that kind of thing. Both are peninsulas. Why so not over both, a bridge? What's the what's the we, issue? We have these little things called earthquakes every once in a while. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, we're used to talking hurricanes and, and, here. <laughs> and the last big one took out a bridge. Yeah, so, gotcha. So they would prefer that their transplant patients not be over a bridge. Okay, makes sense. So, so rough, rough couple of months. But it now was a rough couple of months, but of by the time when it, when recovery began, finally for me, which was probably, I would guess, all of the things got resolved by about July of, of 2018. And they'll tell you, anybody going through the transplant process, everybody tells you the first year is the hardest and yeah. nobody lies about that. The mm. first year is the hardest. Um, it is, it is absolutely the hardest. Every once in a while you run into somebody who's like, I was running marathons three months out and God bless them. I, that's not, Different me. That's for not my story. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, when recovery started to begin for me, it was like a whole new lease on life. I, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I thought I was pretty healthy post trans or pre-transplant because that was my normal. That was my base was, having to stop halfway up a flight of stairs to catch my breath was normal for me. I didn't know anything else. I didn't realize there was anything else out there. Um, And then all of a sudden I was able to do everything I thought about and, and do the hiking that I had always dreamed of doing. Um, I ran a 5k. I did a 10k after that. I, you know, I, it was, it was like this whole new world of like activity opened up to me that was nothing short of miraculous. So Denise, having lived two hours from your transplant center, where did you stay? I I know before you were in the hospital, but when you got out of the hospital, were you able to go back home or did you have to stay closer? Because I know appointments are very frequently early on we had to stay i was in and out of the hospital so i'd be discharged to go to post-transplant housing for a week or so um sometimes maybe even two weeks at a time and then something would happen with my labs and i'd get readmitted right and then you know so i was in and out a lot so what's Um, post-transplant housing who at the time um well at the time the only thing we were handed was a severely out of date list of hotels that agreed to lower rates 
for transplant patients. That was the only thing that was available to us. This was four and a half years ago. So, and it was severely out of date. Uh, management had changed. Sometimes the partnership agreements had gone out of date um, with the hospital and we were left largely to our own devices to figure it out. Um, I have vivid memories of my husband sitting with his phone and his laptop, searching Craigslist, searching um, Facebook Marketplace, searching different places for like um, apart, short-term apartments that might be suitable, calling hotels. Um, and this time that would have been better spent focused on recovery and healing, he spent sitting by my hospital bed researching housing options. Um, and that was kind of the birth, the seed, the germination of an idea that this part of the system needs to change. Um, I didn't know what to do with that at the time because I was too sick and he was too busy. But we ended up finding a lovely woman who has actually since partnered with us who has a um, apartment that is a couple of blocks from the hospital. And she gave us a great rate and allowed us, it still was expensive. It cost us um, almost $5,000 to stay for the period of time that we had to stay post-transplant. But in Northern California, that's kind of a bargain. Um, and we were able to stay a couple blocks from the hospital in her apartment. Um, and it was a two bedroom, two bathroom apartment. It wasn't anything fancy, but it was perfect location and perfect for our needs and allowed me to feel like I was beginning my recovery in a place that felt like home to me. Oh, I love that. And is that where Heartfelt Help Foundation was born? That's where the germination of the idea started, mm -hmm. but it really didn't like germinate, I guess, <laughs> until the idea didn't germinate until I went back for my um, yearly checkup and popped my head into the social worker's office at my clinic because she was retiring and I wanted to say thank you for all that she had done for me and say, wish her well in her next part of her adventure. And came in on a conversation that I probably shouldn't have overheard, but it was about a patient who, who was at risk of being pushed down the uh, transplant list because he had no funding whatsoever to pay oh. for post-transplant housing. And I was like, this is stupid. That <laughs> makes me sick. I think yeah. I said it out loud. Is, this mm -hmm. is stupid. Nothing as stupid as money. Nothing as solvable as money right. should stop someone from getting their transplant, I'm going home and doing something about it. And um, with did. about two weeks notice <laughs> and with wildfires burning, that's the glory of Northern California is we have wildfires, <laughs> with wildfires burning all around us, I threw mm. a um, fundraiser in my backyard and we raised $12,000 under the hospital's 501c3. And we paid for housing for that patient Aww. who I found out afterwards was a widow with three little kids Aww. and and was the sole breadwinner for his family. And when he went into heart failure um, and got listed for transplant, he couldn't work anymore. So they were surviving on disability. I am glad you overheard that conversation. You shouldn't have overheard. It's, it's I mean, yes. it's, it's very it's very direct that your fundraiser saved that that person's life. Uh, but if they yes. would have, if they move a patient down, it's not like they automatically can move them easily 
they won't easily just move them back up, right? And and right, so they right. meet and all the other, like the medical, the 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 mental, the physical, everything else, all the other places, the checks were checked off, the, the boxes were checked, except for the housing. And here you are, and you save the day, basically, you know, by the fundraiser, by, by providing the housing. That's unbelievable. So that happened um, towards the end of 2019. And, um, and I sat down with my family over the holidays and said, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, I, love that. I think we need to start a family foundation. I, I hate that this is an issue for transplant patients. I hate that this housing issue is an issue um, for transplant patients. And I want to do what I can to solve it. I don't know what I can do at this point, but I want to do something. So we all agreed as a family and uh, we filed the paperwork at the beginning of 2020 for Heartfelt Help Foundation and then the world shut down and I thought, well, that's yeah. the end of that. I was going to say. Mm-hmm. The, <laughs> that the time it wasn't great. Got, got better things to do than process a little 501c3 application, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, by about August of 2020, August, September of 2020, um, we got our 501c3 paperwork in the mail, which shocked me because I figured that they would not be working on those kind of things. It was important. Um, And as soon as we got it, we hit the ground running. And uh, we've helped, been able to help 25 patients now with their post-transplant housing. And we learned that there's so much more to it. When we were doing our due diligence to research like the needs of this, we learned from parents of pediatric transplant patients that they were choosing to live in their car rather than go during the pandemic to the Ronald McDonald house, because at least there at, you know, with the, a, the, the houses were shut down because of COVID policies and B, if they were letting anybody in, it was one parent going in with a child and then the other parent couldn't see them. They couldn't see their siblings. That's not conducive for scientifically. We know it's not conducive for recovery, right. for families to be separated, to be pulled apart at the time where they need to be coming together. Um, so it just started just reinforcing this need is ever present and it needs to be done very specifically. And if COVID taught us anything, it's we now know the word bubble. And um, we know that your bubble is critical for your social health, for your mental health, um, and for recovery in these critical times. So Denise, how is your model different than like a transplant house? Uh, Transplant houses, which are phenomenal, I love them, and and we don't have them here. Stanford has um, a transplant house, but it's very limited in who they can serve, and most people are not able well, I used to say about 50% of the people aren't able to go there afterwards um, because it doesn't work for their family in one way, shape, or form or another because of the rules surrounding it. Um, so transplant houses are great, um, but there are communal living situations. There are communal kitchens. There are communal living room situations. You usually have your own bedroom and bathroom, but if you want to go make a snack, you're going to a communal kitchen. And, um, and you're, if you want to watch a movie, you're probably going to a communal living room and sitting with people who you don't know, 
and might potentially not be taking their immunosuppression as seriously as you are. And therefore, um, you're adding risk on where risk doesn't need to be there. Now, I am completely resonating with the argument that sometimes that risk is, is worth it because you're building community and you're getting to talk to people who are in similar situations as you are. Um, my argument back to that is that I think, especially during the first couple of months, uh, your immunosuppression is serious enough that we can build community in other ways. Um, so we partner, our model is that we partner with short-term apartments, like the one I stayed in, um, and suite-style hotels so that families can recover in places that feel like home altogether. Um, as an example, uh, we just sent home a six-year-old little boy who um, received his heart transplant a few months ago. And um, that family, because of obviously of his congenital heart defect, that family is extraordinarily close. And they qualified for Ronald McDonald House, but they really didn't want to stay there because if mom had gone in with this sweet little boy, dad and sibling could not have seen them. Grandma couldn't have seen them until they came out. There was no swapping off of care. There was no respite. None of that was able to happen. So they came to us and we were able to put them into a, um, basically an apartment where um, they could all be together. The whole family could be together. And his recovery went so well. They actually discharged him to go home earlier than they had anticipated. And the family will tell you that they think it's because everybody was able to be together. Right. Their support system was there. And I'm sure they will be eternally grateful to you for that as well. How can one support your foundation if they um, are inclined to do so or participate in this virtual race? Well, last year for our first fundraiser, we did a virtual 5K. And we ended up having participants from not only all over the U.S., but in Canada and parts of Europe, which Love was that. amazing to me. Yes. Um, we actually had a Marine platoon in Japan do the 5K. Which was so much fun to see. Uh, they sent photos. And, and if you look at our social media, you'll see it. We included it in a reel that these guys that were all they had all their gear on because, of Aww. course, they can't just do a simple 5K. That's yeah, right. too easy for them. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's beneath them. So, <laughs> it's beneath them is right. So they had like 100 pounds of gear on them and oh, did the 5K, which was amazing. That's the way to do so, it. So it, it really is. So it's just it was so much fun to watch. And when we were planning this year's, we were thinking about, do we do one in person? And I thought, why would I say no to these people who, who supported us last year? who are everywhere and resonate with the need of transplant housing. Um, because that is something that anybody with a heart issue of any sort or heart disease in their family, um, we all can resonate with the need for housing. No matter who you are, you, you know and where you are and housing prices are going up everywhere. Um, we all know how hard it is to get housing. Um, so we're doing another virtual 5K. It's a 5K your way if you like to dance dance your way to a 5k if you like to hike hike your way to a 5k um get on your peloton 
um, or your knockoff version of your Peloton. And, and uh, join us for a 5K anytime between October 1st and 10th. Um, you can, there are links in our social media account, which we're on social media all the time. There's links on our website um, to sign up. Uh, you can reach out to us through our website to um, help or suggest. We're looking, always looking for sponsors um, to help us make housing happen. That's our motto is we want to make housing happen for these patients. And in the Bay Area, especially in Silicon Valley, where tech travel is back, um, housing is uh, quickly approaching even at the negotiated rate about three, three fifty a night. Oh my word. For housing. And I'm sure if someone wants to help your foundation but is not a five K'er like myself or even like you could do it, a Lisa. blocker. Yes. Do this. Well, I'm sure there's say, there's how do you, a way how to do you generally move. I'm certain through the office. We move our mouths here. We move our mouths here. Joe and I just so came I, came from the second floor. He took the stairs. <laughs> I took the elevator. <laughs> I, uh, I I can tell you that everybody moves in in some way, shape, or form during the day, and I'll bet you that throughout the day or a couple of days, everybody can do the equivalent of a 5K. And the best thing is that we partnered with a local amazing artist and she created this logo for, that'll go on everybody's t-shirt that is a work of art. I actually want her to give me a digital image of it. That is, um, you'll have to see it. We're, we're putting it up on our social media today, but it's basically an anatomical heart that that is changed into a road and it's meant to reflect the um, adventure and the journey of transplant. Um, and of course the bottom part of the heart, the bottom chambers of the heart are turned into grapevines because we live in wine country. So oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. I love, I love that. Denise, I just need to sit in a room with you and just listen to you talk. <laughs> let's let's oh. have some new ideas. I love it. I um, would I would love that. I would love that. We talk about um, one person making a difference. Think we found her, guys. This is Denise from Northern California, heartfelthelpfoundation.com. Um, I visited there yesterday. I love the, the family testimonials. Those are powerful. I love that your family does this with you. And I love that this is your passion and how you honor your donor. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Absolutely. And, and that's the whole point is that I want to be able to look back on this and know that in some way, shape, or form, I made my donor, I made my donor's family proud. That that this heart that I was gifted didn't just sit on the couch <laughs> and and not try and make a change in our little corner of the world. And I want to make a change in my little corner of the world and make sure that this world of transplant that I never asked for, but find myself a part of. Um, and I'm so grateful to be a part of that I can change it a little bit for the better. Well, it sounds like you've changed several families thus far. And again, I'm sure they're going to be eternally grateful for that. So I'm eternal grateful for the opportunity to partner with them. Um, getting to meet these families has been life changing to me. It's been as much of a gift for me as it has been 
hopefully for them. Denise, we'll have an open mic for you anytime you want to head back. Uh, We hope that you grow this program. It looks like you have some wonderful people supporting you, including us here at The Gifted Life, and keep doing what you do. We're proud. Thank you so much. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we take a moment for mental health. And today, what are we talking about, Joe? Yeah, Laura, I'm really interested to hear about something I've never heard of before, doom scrolling. First of all, what is it, Lisa? Well, I was going to throw that out to you and Lori, uh, Joey, to see what do you think that is? Doom, like doom, D-O-O-M, scrolling. What what comes to mind when you... So scrolling social media. Yeah. And looking for... Tragedies? Yeah. The bad stuff? Yeah. So it's a phenomena, apparently, and it can actually impact our mental health and not in a good way. I truly believe that, yes. It is described as a ceaseless compulsion to keep refreshing and devouring all those unsavory news stories. So is it like just tragedies or is it like you you yeah, try and look the, at you try and look at things that hoping that other friends or something on Facebook might have bad situations, divorce, what like what are we talking about well, here? Well, without realizing we're doing it. Realize we not realize we don't realize we do it. Um but it's been linked to experiences of depression and poor health. And there's also mountains of evidence to support the idea that long-term stress negatively affects physical and mental well-being. All right. This is a true story on Facebook. I know. There was one of our friends who said that her doctor, her physical doctor, uh, said that she had to step away from Facebook, like she made a post, and she said, because this is becoming overwhelming and the negativity is impacting my health. It's good impacting for, me physically. Good for that doctor for recognizing that. Yeah, but That's, I thought that was interesting, and I was like, oh, a medical doctor mm-hmm. is saying, please stop looking at this stuff. Because you see friends going down a rabbit hole sometime. Like, you can tell when somebody's kind of in a rut. Yeah. Well, to, to an obsessive point, yeah. too. Um, and it makes you feel more and more anxious. Um, it, and it's when you go to these like websites um, and, and they make you feel anxious and you, but then you, you get hooked and you want to read more to see what happens next. And it, um, it's a quest um, to find as much disheartening information as possible. And so one of the things um, of the, over the last couple of years, there's just been tons of it, right? You you almost can't get away from it. And so we catch ourselves, that's all we're doing. Um, the, the climate, the COVID pandemic, the highly visible police brutality, the increased political polarization, um, all of that is at our fingertips. And we can recycle it and recycle it and recycle it. And it, it really is not um, a very good thing for us. Um, according to a Dr. Ken Yeager, a psychiatrist at Ohio State University's Medical Center, it really comes from an evolutionary process that it once helped us. So if you think back in the days, way back in the days, thousands of years ago, the need to anticipate negative things was a necessity, right? You needed to know when the tiger was going to come to get you. Or I'm talking about like years ago yeah. um, <laughs> um, before, right, before right. really um, – anything we understand as current civilization. 
Um, they had to observe and anticipate harmful events. So it's really wired into our brain. But because modern day technology and with social media, there's so much of it and it's there. And so we tend to we tend to get pulled to that and then more pulled and more pulled. And it really becomes a terrible cycle. And we, we honestly in where social media should be, I mean, social media is media that's supposed to bring us more social activity, but it can really make people start feeling alone um, and isolated. Um, so I, it's not a good thing. I would actually even add to that. Uh, it's a conversation I've had, a discussion, disagreement uh, with with some of my friends uh, about mainstream media, too. I mean, it's not just social media. You flip on mainstream media, and if I watch the 5 to 5.30 or 5.30 whatever, 5.30 to 6, and then 6, basically from 5 to 6.30, I have to wait until the last three minutes of the, uh, of the episode of the, of the show to actually catch a heartfelt story that's positive because it feels like, and I know, Laurie, I'm not, you know, that's your, your, your old stomping ground, <laughs> but, but you have to agree at Former least to a point. Former news girl, but yeah, yeah but the 24-hour news cycle is really, everything is yeah. This is negative. This is negative. This and then it's like, all right, this is how these people are responding negative, negatively to it. And it, I've actually taken myself, like your friend, away from the mainstream media too. Like I've had to, I barely get on Facebook and I and I barely watch mainstream media for that. I feel my stress level rising, and with stress level rising brings high blood pressure and all kind of heart issues and everything else negative, basically that happens with. With your body physically. And, and some of the stuff it's showing, so like a sad story comes up, something that's tragic, you know, where a community used to grieve that. Well, we don't have time to grieve. Like, okay, you hear this yes. family was in this accident and three people passed away. And we don't have time to grieve that because before you can blink your eye, there's another sad story or another tragic story. And um, we're not able to fully process one before there's another one that hits us. So um, it really, it can really affect us negatively in our mindset. Um, and according to the Cleveland Clinic, doom scrolling can reinforce negative thoughts and neg- a negative mindset, which then is going to equal um, not great mental health. So how can we stop ourselves? Because we do use social media. We do use the news. Like you said, at the end of the news, there's always maybe a good story. Um and, you know, in social media, you know, we have Facebook pages where we communicate with our donor families, where we communicate with our with our employees. And so there are benefits to that. So how can you keep those things but not let them become keep them your, in check? Yes. Yeah. Um, in, in more I went a, to a um, Facebook seminar, which was fabulous to see actual people who were behind this. There were young, obviously bright professionals, but they said, it becomes overwhelming for us. So they set these alarms, and I don't know if, if this is going to go with what, what you're talking about, but they said, so if I have to be on there for work, but I'm going to set an alarm. I'm going to do it for this long. Then I have to go do something else. Yes. Like mm-hmm. away from technology, take a walk outside, go do some, call a friend, or do something different because it becomes your whole being. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, first off, you have to – recognize it as a habit of yours so you can't do anything to ever correct anything that's a poor habit if you don't understand it and recognize it as a poor habit so we breaking have to, habits hard lisa <laughs> <laughs> it's breaking, hard for me to break a habit <laughs> well sure it is um 
man, if, if habits were easy to break, we'd all be in perfectly good mental and physical health, right? <laughs> um, so you just have to recognize it. And it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And limit your screen time. So yeah, if you have to set an alarm, that's a great idea. Set an alarm. You know, I, I get a weekly screen report on my phone. I don't I guess I have it set to come up, I don't know, every Sunday at a certain time in the morning it comes up and it says how many hours I've been on my screen. So look at that and start limiting that. Lock down your phone. And then also enjoy activities that keep you more aware. Again, we talk almost every time I talk about exercise and socializing. Um, And yeah, we need to stop and smell the roses. You know, there are thorns. We can't avoid it there are thorns in life but man on top of those thorns are beautiful roses that are beautiful they smell good um and so we have to take moments to just smell the roses so that's what doom scrolling is that's kind of it in a nutshell we learned a new i had word. never heard of it i'm you know researching topics for the podcast i'm like doom scroll like Oh, I think that'll be a good one. That um, is a good I, one. The first thing I want to do is ask Lori and Joey if they know what doom scrolling was. I mean, we were kind of we were kind of on point, like we were guessing. Yeah, context clues. That's so just yeah. That's what an the word means and says. So that's anyway, an interesting topic. look, check your screen times, time yourself, make sure you're looking for good, happy things in addition to the desire to keep up with the bad things that are happening yeah. and sad things. Keep it in check. It's a good yeah. thing. Everything in moderation. Right? That's right. All right. Maybe you have a topic you'd like for us to cover here on The Gifted Life. All you have to do is email us info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment today, do I need to put my wish to donate in my will so my family knows that I want to be a donor? I'm going to kick that to you, Joe, but Oh, I hope you tell your family you also want to be a donor, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, the key is to let them know. Uh, the answer to this is, is no, you don't need to, to put it in your will. Now, some, some people do have it in their will, and it's important when we do find it. But unfortunately, that's not something we can easily search. Oftentimes, the will is not, uh, is not even looked at until later. Later, yeah. Uh, so, so for us, the most important thing is to put it on your license or register. And then let your family know about it. Have that conversation with your family so that they're aware so that when we do uh, go through those next steps with them, they've already known because you've, you've had the conversation with them that this is what you want and this is why you want it. So it makes those next steps much easier. And not only when you register are you given the gift of life to someone, when you tell your family you're giving them a gift as well by not having to make that decision um, potentially one day make that decision. The, so the gift, because people don't like to talk about that. We know that, but you're, think about it as giving your family a gift by sharing that decision with them. All right. You have a question for us. All you have to do is give us a call. 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Carl C.J. Miller. And we learn about him from his wife. Carl C.J. Miller was truly one of a kind. He was the life of the party, never met a stranger, and lived life to the absolute fullest. He was a devoted husband and the best father to his two daughters. He worked hard and gave his family a fairy tale life. He passed away unexpectedly in July of 2021. 
through his death, he was able to help those in need. It gives us so much peace knowing that his death wasn't for nothing. CJ was the type of person to help anyone in need, no questions asked. So when I, his wife, was contacted about his organs, I knew that he'd want nothing more than to help others. His favorite saying was, I'm living the dream. My plea is for everyone to live life the way he did, carefree and passionately. So let's pause and say thank you to Carl for the gift of life. All right, guys, episode 195 of The Gifted Life is in the books. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org. Also, a huge thank you to Denise Redeker, not only for sharing her story, but for starting up the Heartfelt Help Foundation and helping so many others through something that I didn't even realize was a problem. It's funny in, in, the, in the donation transplant world. And she saw that, or she overheard it, and then turned that into her mission and to help paying it forward for others. One person making a difference. Yeah. Gotta love it. The best place to find us, guys, at our website, thegiftedlife.org. Tell your friends. And then listen to us and find links to listen on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you listen on Apple Podcast, please give us a five-star rating. It helps others find our podcast. On social media, you can like our page. On Facebook, we're The Gifted Life Podcast. On Twitter and Instagram, at Gifted Life Pod. Thanks for spending some time with us today. We ask that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. For one big team. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Nala Schwab. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>